Well, if you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to join me in two uh, separate passages of Scripture, uh, Matthew chapter 26 and also Luke chapter 22, Matthew 26 and Luke chapter 22, Matthew 26 and Luke chapter 22. Last Sunday, we concluded our series of sermons through Luke 15 and the parables of of Jesus there, and uh, we're going to continue to study through the Gospel of Luke, but for the next few weeks between now and Easter Sunday, we're going to, uh, to participate in a study called the Cup, the Crown, and the Cross. So beginning this morning, looking at the Cup, and the weeks ahead, the, the Crown of Thorns and, and the Cross. So between now and um, Easter Sunday, we'll look at selected passages of Scripture as we turn our attention to the final days of Jesus and their significant implications for us as we lead up to Uh, celebrating the glorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was reading a story this week that I was had heard of before but but um, but learned a little bit more about this this week. H.G. Wells, an author of many years ago, wrote a a novel called The War of the Worlds that was published in 1898 and uh, then many years later as a matter of fact on October the 30th 1938, the CBS radio series, The Mercury Theater on the Air, broadcast an audio drama, uh, drama of the War of the Worlds. And they changed a few details in H.G. Wells' work. For example, they changed the location. Wells had written uh, about a, a, an alien invasion is what the War of the Worlds was about that had taken place in England, but the audio drama changed the location to a town called West Windsor Township, New Jersey. So, so, of course, 1938, no television. The family gathers around the radio to, to, for, for their entertainment and, and, and to receive news and so on and so forth. And so when the audio drama began, they presented it in the form of interrupted news bulletins. And the beginning of the program was, in a word, dull. It's boring. There were Monday, Monday news bulletins interspersed with the typical music of the, of the day. Now, on four separate occasions during the hour-long broadcast, an announcer came on to clearly inform the audience that the production was a work of fiction. It was a dramatization of H.G. Wells' well-known novel. However, in the production's final minutes, when the news bulletins began to broadcast of an alien invasion occurring in West Windsor Township, New Jersey, thousands listening had no idea it was a work of fiction and truly believed Earth was being invaded by aliens. They were terrified. Terrified for all who were listening, particularly those listening in West Windsor Township, New Jersey. Now, uh, I want to put a picture on the screen of the New York Times Headline you see there, Monday, October 31st, the day after, 1938. And if you listen, look at the middle uh, headline there, radio listeners in panic, taking war drama as fact. Many flee homes to escape gas raid from Mars. Phone calls swamp police at broadcast of Wells Fantasy. In other words, they were listening to a story that was not one bit true, and, and yet they thought, that it was, and it terrified them. And, and it was not my intention as I was reading about this and, and, and looking uh, uh, some things related to it. And then I saw the New York Times, and, 
And then I saw the headline right beside of it, and it was kind of stunning. The headline right beside it says, Ousted Jews find refuge in Poland after border stay. Exiles go to relatives' homes or to camps maintained by distribution committee. Now, you know it's 1938, and the Jews are on the run from Nazi Germany. And, and it's fascinating the, the, the uh, way these two headlines are together. One, about thousands of people terrified about something that isn't actually true. And on the other, thousands thinking they're finally safe, when in reality the threat is still very real. You can take the New York Times headline off the, uh, off the screen, and we're going to turn our attention here to, to Matthew chapter 26. Because something remarkable happens in Matthew 26 all the way through the, the Gospels when people are terrified, when, when people are um, <laughs> uh, sort of losing their minds. Over and over and over again, Jesus has been steadfast. He's been unshakable. He's been faithful when others are fearful. Think about the disciples in the boat. When the storm comes up, they're, they're uh, terrified. And where is Jesus? He's asleep on the, on the boat. When they get off the boat, they, they meet Legion, a, a man possessed of thousands of demons. And everybody in that region was terrified of Legion. But we find Jesus unshakable, unmovable, full of authority and power and dominion. Now, all through, at the death of Lazarus, when others are fearful and unfaithful, Jesus remains calm, clear-headed, and in control. And then we're going to get here to Matthew 26, and that totally turns upside down in a way. We're going to find Jesus is the one in great agony while his disciples are asleep. And let's talk about why that is so. So we're going to read uh, Matthew's account and also Luke's account of this scene, beginning with Matthew's in uh, chapter 26 and verse 36. So Matthew 26 and verse 36 says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little Farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time he went and prayed. He went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, let's, in addition to that text, read Luke's account of the same scene in Luke chapter 22. As Luke gives us a few details in addition to what Matthew has recorded. So Luke chapter 22, verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And and when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And we've not seen Jesus like this in our studies in Luke so far. He's always in control. He's always, he's always uh, uh, so, so uh, clearly in authority. And then we get here to a scene in, at the Mount of Olives, specifically in a garden called Gethsemane. And the description we're given is he's very troubled. He's sorrowful unto death. He's in agony. And he's sweating drops of blood. What is going on here? What is it that Jesus is thinking about and wrestling with that has caused him to use the Bible's word, such agony? Well, that's what we want to pray about and study together this morning. Pray with me. Father, this is a significant matter preserved in Holy Scripture Of why is Jesus in such great agony? He's faced demons and not been fearful. He's faced uh, great storms and, and not been afraid. He's faced criticism, harsh criticism from the Pharisees and the scribes. And, and he's not been afraid. And now we find him here in the Garden of Gethsemane sorrowful and troubled and in great agony. Well, I pray that you'd give us great wisdom and clarity that we'd know that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. But in order to save sinners, there was something that he had to do that caused him great agony. Help us understand fully what that was And at the conclusion of our service today, I pray that you'd give us greater confidence in how great our salvation is, greater love and a gratitude for what Christ has done for us. And remarkable confidence that what so agonized Jesus, we, because of him, will not face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, on the western slope of the Mount of Olives, there's a garden called Gethsemane. That's where we find Jesus. Gethsemane literally means oil press. And God, who's sovereign over all things, I think it's no coincidence that Jesus finds himself in great agony at a place called the oil press. He's been there many times to pray, but never quite like this. He goes there one final time to pray. Now, by this time in his ministry, most of his followers have deserted him. The interesting thing, as you study through the, through the Gospels, is that as Jesus taught more and more truth, his disciples actually became fewer and fewer and fewer. He had large crowds and large turnouts as he was conducting uh, great miracles, but as he 
drove the crowds into deeper truths in his teachings, many of them left. Even now, one of his 12 disciples has deserted him to, to, to betray him. And then in this text, he asks just three of the remaining 11 disciples to pray with him, and they can't stay awake. So now we find ourselves in a scene where all that's left is God the Father and God the Son, and Jesus knows that very soon even God the Father is going to turn his back on him. And I, and I think you saw it as we read through the Scripture together. Jesus prays not once, not twice, on three separate occasions. Matthew 26, verse 39. My soul is sorrowful even to death. That's verse 38. Verse 39, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Verse 42. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Verse 44, so leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Now, he's asking on multiple occasions, let this cup pass from me. So what is this, what is this cup? What is he talking about when he says to Father, Father, let this cup pass from me? Well, it's not a literal physical cup. It's, it's an expression. The cup is a symbol that speaks of experiencing something fully. Fully experiencing something. That's what he, he, there's a cup, it's a figurative symbol. And when you would take a cup and you would drink it, obviously what was in the cup would become a part of you. That's a, that's a, that's a way of figure of speech, so to speak. So, so he's saying this cup, there's something that he's going to experience fully that at the thought of it, he says, Father, can this cup pass from me? And again, he doesn't say it once. He doesn't say it twice. He says it three times. What is it? that he's being asked to experience fully that has left him in agony, such great agony, that he's physically sweating drops of blood. So we want to organize our study around three headings, three simple points. We'll talk about the contents of this cup. We'll talk about the consumption of this cup. And then, with great joy, we'll talk about the communion of the cup. So let's talk about the contents of the cup. What is it in this cup, this figurative cup, that Jesus dreads so much? What is it that he would have to experience fully that the thought of it brought him such agony? Was it the physical suffering of the crucifixion? Is that what he's dreading so much? Now, there's little question that the physical torment and pain of crucifixion was extreme. And in the weeks ahead, we'll talk about some of the physical adversity Jesus faces, the scourging. Now, the Romans, if nothing else, were experts in physically tormenting people. Fallen humanity, sinful humanity, has, has, has likely not conceived of a form of execution as painful as crucifixion. The physical pain endured by Jesus was real. His real, physical, human body endured all of it. But it's not the physical pain of crucifixion that Jesus that brought Jesus to this point of agony. Was it the emotional pain of the imminent betrayal of his close friends and disciples? In fact, if you just read a few verses ahead to verse 56, it concludes saying that all the disciples left him and fled. All of them are gone. I mean, to be betrayed by your close friends... 
Someone like Peter who says uh, uh, up here uh, in verse 33 of the same chapter, Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And, and, and a few minutes later, he had fallen asleep. Uh, uh, undeniably, there's great pain and suffering when those we know and love betray or abandon us. Those who we count on most when they're not le- there for us or they leave us. But it's, it's not the emotional pain that he is agonizing over. It's not physical suffering of crucifixion or the emotional pain of his betrayal. So what is it? Well, the best description would probably be it's not physical and it's not emotional. This agony is spiritual. The contents of the cup, this cup that he's going to to drink, it contains two things. The first that he's going to experience fully is the pollution of sin. The pollution of sin is in the cup. Hebrews 4, 15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet, does anybody know this verse? Without sin. He's sinless, spotless. Now, Jesus never, 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 never sinned. Not one spot or blemish was in him. He never cheated. He never had unrighteous anger. Uh, He never lusted. He never stole. He never lied. He never broke a single one of his father's commands. Neither did he ever fail to do the right thing. It's not just that he never did the wrong thing. He never failed to do the right thing. He never failed to help. He never passed by on the other side, to use the terminology of the Good Samaritan parable. He never obeyed, uh, he never failed rather to obey the Father's will. Now, if you're in Matthew or in Luke or wherever you might be in your Bible, I want you to turn with me to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians is about midway through the, the New Testament. So uh, there's a a portion of scripture I want you to see here that I believe helps us appreciate in more full detail and in greater clarity what it is that Jesus is agonizing over. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you're in 2 Corinthians 5, let's begin in verse 17. The Bible says, Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Isn't that good news? Not, not, not an improved version of yourself, not a, uh, not, not a start over, so to speak. You're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, how does this happen? All this is from God. Let's get specific about it. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now, this is important. The Bible says that he's not counted for those who are in Christ now. Let's get the whole picture, get all the details. Every word's important. For those who are in Christ, what does that mean? Those who believe in Jesus, those who have faith in Christ. For those people, God is not counting their trespasses against them, but that's not to say that God has not counted up the trespasses. He has counted up the trespasses. The gospel is not that here's all the trespasses and God just says, well, I'm not going to count them. No, no, no. It just says he hasn't counted them against us. So what happened to those trespasses? Look at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, 
Be reconciled to God. Now, how do you get reconciled to God? Verse 21. Here's why Jesus is agonizing. Here's why Jesus is very troubled. Here's why Jesus is sweating great drops of blood. Here is why the one who's never been rattled, never been worried, never been frustrated, never been scared, never been concerned. Verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Can we read it again? Why? Why did he do this? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. He's spotless, sinless, righteous, and now he's going to become everything that is ungodly. Everything that is sinful. Now you imagine a cup, figurative language, and imagine your sin going into that cup. Can you think of it in these terms? All you've ever done to disobey God, and all you've ever done to fail to obey God, your anger, your, your lusting, your lying, your envy, your greed, Imagine it being poured into a cup. Sobering, isn't it? It's got to go somewhere, right? And it's going into a, to a cup to use the Scripture's metaphor. Now, imagine it's not just your sin. It's everybody in this room's sin. It's all going into a cup. And it's not just everybody in this room's sin. It's the sin of the world. The sin of the ages, the murder, the, the rape, child abuse. Everything that the holy and righteous wrath of God burns against and demands payment for. All of it goes into the cup. Now, we, at our humanity, don't have a full understanding of the scope and horror of sin. We don't understand the full implications, but do you know what Jesus did? Jesus knew what this cup was all about. He knew what was in the cup. He would not only bear our sin, what this scripture is teaching us, is he would become our sin. Can, can we even begin to grasp this? The spotless lamb of God becoming sin, the sinless one be, becoming our sin. It's enough for Jesus to ask not once, not twice, but three times. Please, Father, please, Father. There be any other way. There be any other way. Let this cup pass from me. I don't want to drink this cup. I don't want to become sin. Let this cup pass from me. And the contents of the cup not only is the pollution of sin, but also the contents of the cup is the punishment for sin. That's in the cup. He would bear the wrath of God the Father against sin. Now we often say our biggest problem is we don't know what our biggest problem is. And you get a newspaper out, and it'll talk about politics and economics and this, that, or the other. The biggest problem we have is we're sinful and God's holy. That's the biggest problem we've got. He's holy. He's righteous. He's just. Now, the Bible does not say he does not count trespasses. He counts every last one of them. And he is really, really good at math and really, really good at balancing the books. And every sin has to be accounted for some way, somehow. If not, 
If God overlooks one half of one's sin, he ceases to be holy. And therefore, what happens? He ceases to be God. He's holy. He's righteous. He's he's perfect. The great problem is, how can a sinful person be reconciled to a holy God? There's only one way. We just read it. In Christ. In Christ, God reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And then entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. There's pollution of sin in the cup, and then there's the punishment for sin in the cup. Jesus will become sin, and God the Father will treat him accordingly. At the cross, the sin of the world will be distilled upon Jesus. He is the sinless one who became sin for us and bears the wrath of God against sin. That's the contents of the cup. Secondly, let's look at the consumption of the cup. The contents of the cup is the the pollution of sin and the punishment of sin and then the consumption of the cup, number two. Jesus nears the hour. He says the hour is at hand. All through the gospel so far, he says, my time has not come, my time has not come, the hour has not come, the hour, and then we get here and he says the hour has come. And when the hour comes, we see Jesus shrinking back if it were now i have to tell you that he shrank back from the cup does not make me think less of him it makes me think more of him doesn't it you he understands what's in this cup he understands what it means to have the sin of the world in the in in the cup so let me give you a couple of ways that jesus consumed the cup jesus consumed the cup willingly he dreaded it but he was willing to do it Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. John chapter 10, verse 18. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. He consumed the cup willingly. He consumed the cup voluntarily. He consumed the cup victoriously. And he consumed the cup completely. The good descriptions, aren't they? Willingly, voluntarily, victoriously, completely. Now let's take a moment to zoom out. We're, we're here in Matthew 26 to just zoom out a moment to get a little bit more of the context. Jesus has walked to the Garden of Gethsemane immediately from sitting down at the Last Supper with his disciples. Look with me in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 26. He says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took, what does he take? Does anybody see what he take? What does he take? He says, I'm going to take a cup. Now, again, what does it mean to take a cup? The, the cup's a symbol. The cup is you take a cup to experience something fully. So he took a cup and when he had given thanks, what does he do with his cup? What does it say? He gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in, the, in my Father's kingdom. Do you see, he, uh, he's taking your cup. In the garden, that's what he's wrestling about. He's going to take your he's going to take your sin. But it's not just that. You see, he's also offering you his cup. You see it? 
he became sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see that it's both? It's both that he's taking your cup, and while he's taking your cup, he's offering you his cup. This is our salvation. This is, this is the message of the Bible. This is, this is the riddle of the ages. How does God reconcile sinners to himself? It's, it's mercy and grace. Mercy that we don't drink the cup, but it's not just that we don't drink our own cup. We get his cup. Somebody say amen, because this is, this is good news. It's not just that he became sin. That's not all. He became our sin, but then he also offers us his righteousness. He says, here's my cup. I want you to drink it. Now, in the same way, in the same way that, that Jesus is going to completely drink our cup, he's offering you the invitation to completely drink his cup. Can I put it this way? He's not going to sip your sinful cup, so you don't sip his righteous cup. Drink it fully. Accept it completely. He's in agony in Gethsemane to purchase you a full redemption. So do not settle for a half-hearted, incomplete, sipping salvation. The Bible says here in verse 30, after the Lord's Supper, on their way to Gethsemane, the Bible says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, they're celebrating the Passover at the Last Supper. And, and when it says they sang a hymn, the traditional hymn is, uh, is a psalm. It's a Psalm 118. Now, I don't know. Hopefully, your interest is uh, peaked enough to know. All right, so all this cup uh, uh, switching is going on, and, and you're telling me on the way to Gethsemane, Jesus sings a song. Would you like to know what the lyrics of the song is? that he's singing on his way to Gethsemane. The lyrics is Psalm 118. So why don't you turn with me to Psalm 118. And I want you to see the song on Jesus' lips as he approaches Gethsemane, the consumption of the cup. He's on his way to willingly, voluntarily, victoriously, completely drink the cup of sin. And, And on his way, he sings a song. Now, I encourage you to read and meditate and settle on all of Psalm 118 sometime this week. But let's pick up in verse 19. We'll get just the end of the song. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the feastal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And then Jesus steps into the garden of Gethsemane. He says, my father, if it's possible for this cup to pass. Now you read Psalm 118, verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Save us, we pray, O Lord. In order to save us, the cup cannot pass from him. 
The only way that God can answer Psalm 118 verse 25 is to not answer, let this cup pass from me. Do we see it? The only way we can have success is for the bestial sacrifice to be bound with cords upon the horns of the altar. Now, Probably, in your hearing, the most familiar verse in Psalm 118, the one you've heard most in your life, is, This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. When Jesus is in Gethsemane, eternity past to eternity future, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. He has saved us. He's answered Psalm 118 with a yes. And so he has to answer, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. With it's not possible for this cup to pass from you. The contents of the cup is the pollution of sin and the punishment for sin. The consumption, rather, of the cup is that Jesus takes it willingly, victoriously, and completely. And then the third point this morning is the communion of the cup. We meet Jesus right here, right here in Gethsemane. This is where you have to meet Jesus. He takes my sin, I take his righteousness. He offers me his cup, and he drinks my cup. So Jesus drank my cup to the very last drop, so you should do the same again with his cup. Don't just sip the cup of the new covenant, experience it fully. If the enemy cannot keep you from being saved, at the very least he would seek to have you not experience the joy of your salvation fully. You remember what drinking the cup means? Again, it means experiencing it fully. Can I ask you, have you experienced fully the forgiveness of sins? You just sipped on it a little bit. Have you experienced fully that there is no leftover, no leftover wrath for you if you are in Christ Jesus. You are a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Jesus took all of it. God did not pour some of his wrath in this cup and now is saving some for you. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I want to read one more Old Testament passage of scripture so we can see clearly what was the will of the father. When this moment came. So turn with me to Isaiah. Last passage I'll probably ask you to turn to. Isaiah chapter 53. My father. If it be possible. Let this cup pass from me. Not as I will. But as you will. What was the father's will? Isaiah 53. Verse 4, we'll start there. Surely, in other words, certainly, in other words, beyond a shadow of a doubt, He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. This is written about 780 some odd years before Jesus was in Gethsemane. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he's wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Down here in verse 10, it will answer our question. What was the will of the Father? Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When a soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. This is the anguish of his soul, is it not, here in Gethsemane. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted, to be accredited righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. He's not bearing his iniquities. He doesn't have any iniquities. He's bearing their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide his spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death. He's numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Oh, God, give us grace to hear these words from Scripture. He makes intercession. We've been reconciled. We've been redeemed. So that's the doctrine of our salvation. Let me give you very briefly a few applications from the doctrine. I've got, uh, I got three for you briefly. Under the communion of the cup, here's just some applications, some things. On the basis of God's word and on the basis of what Christ has done that you can believe and apply. Number one, Jesus became, bore, and fully paid for all the sin of those who trust him. He drank the whole cup. Jesus knew fully well what was being asked of him. So if you have lingering regret and guilt, and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that lingering regret and guilt is misplaced. The reality of the cup is, yes, it was enough to agonize Jesus. No, sin's not a small matter. No, sin's not a small thing. Jesus was in agony, but he but he drank it. And one of the results of him drinking it is that you now can be free of the guilt and the shame. You see, he took it for you. He took it instead of you. So Jesus became born and fully paid for all the sin of those who trust him. That ought to, that ought to uh, spur you on to much joy in your salvation. There's no believer in the Lord Jesus Christ that should be weighed down with guilt and shame and condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation. How much condemnation? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. You hear that? Set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, according to the spirit. Do you hear it? He took your cup. He didn't just take your cup, gave you his cup. Took your sin, gave you his righteousness. Took your filthy rags, gave you his righteous robe. Amen? Number two, Jesus Drinking our cup means he can also be trusted with all of our lesser problems. Now, this is not in any way to diminish 
the real life suffering that you may have going on in your life right now. But Jesus drinking our cup means he can be trusted with all of our lesser problems. What are we saying? Jesus handled in Gethsemane the biggest problem we've got. We're sinful. He's righteous. He handled that problem. So if he handled that problem, you can trust him with all your lesser problems. Romans 8, 31 and 32. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Life can be difficult. It will be full of suffering and hardship. But none of our suffering or hardship can be compared with the suffering and agony endured by Jesus on our behalf. And the one who endured that on our behalf will be enough and will be sufficient and can be trustworthy to see us through all the other lesser sufferings. Last uh, implication and belief under this heading, the communion of the cup. Jesus drank the cup because there was no other way for us to be saved. I'll say this again. Jesus drank the cup because there was no other way for us to be saved. You very likely seen a bumper sticker that I see uh, fairly regularly. It's a bumper sticker that represents the, uh, the spirit of our age. The bumper sticker has one word on it, and the word is coexist. And then all the letters of the word coexist are made up of different religious symbols. I believe the Islamic crescent moon is the sea and coexist. And then something, the star of David must, is in there somewhere. And then the T and the banner, the bumper sticker, the coexist, you know what the T is? The T is the cross. And so the bumper sticker is essentially saying, and, and I get the message, but the bumper sticker is essentially saying, let's just all coexist, all different forms of belief. Everybody believes something different about God, so let's just coexist. Can I tell you that Jesus is not agonizing in the garden so that he can provide the tea and the bumper sticker. He's not, he's not sweating grape drops of blood so that he can be a way. Father, if there be other ways for people to be reconciled to you, let this cup pass from me. Do you see? The cup doesn't pass. What does that mean? There is no other way. Every time you see the bumper sticker or hear the message, you in your mind need to go to Matthew and see Jesus Christ in chapter 26, verses 36 through 45, asking there be any other way. Father, there be any other way. Pleading earnestly, the most earnest man there's ever been, the Son of God come in the flesh, pleading if there be any other way. And here's what he hears. Silence. Save us, O Lord, we pray. Save us, O Lord, we pray. Psalm 118. The cup did not pass from him. Why? There is no other way. In conclusion, I want to show you a few pictures on the screen from a trip my brother took to Israel. That's the Garden of Gethsemane right there. Many of those trees have been there since before Jesus walked the earth. Jesus went there, pleaded there, fell on his face there. He sweated great drops of blood there. And, and then here's what is written there. This text. Put a, put a plaque there in the garden of Gethsemane. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And then somebody 
wrote these words, O Jesus, in the deepest night in agony, you spoke these words of trust and surrender to God the Father in Gethsemane. In love and gratitude, I want to say in times of fear and distress, my Father, I do not understand. I do not understand, but I trust you. You back up one, just one slide, just so we got, got, got it there again. Here is where your salvation was won. The victory was really won in Gethsemane. Now, it's paid for at Calvary, and it's going to be confirmed on Resurrection Sunday. But it was here among these trees in that garden that all the sins that had begun in another garden of Eden were overcome. In Eden, Adam and Eve were people who wanted to be like God. They desired to eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil so that they could become like God. In Gethsemane, God came as man to drink the cup filled with the sins of men and women. Nobody else could do it. Nobody else could do it, and this is the only way he could do it. The cup cannot pass. The cup did not pass. Jesus drank the cup voluntarily, completely, victoriously. He's paid it all. And now, having offered to drink your cup, he offers you his cup. The grace of God in Christ Jesus offers a wonderful exchange. He'll take your cup, filled to the brim with all your sin, and he will give you his cup, filled to the brim with all his righteousness. Have you done both? Have you trusted that he took yours? And have you trusted that he offered you his I'm going to invite you to stand and we're going to have an invitation in response to God's word. The invitation this morning is open to anyone who would publicly like to respond to the gospel. We're going to sing a song here in just a moment that, that echoes what we've studied this morning. That Jesus, Jesus paid it all. Every last bit. And, and again, I... I want to encourage you that it's not just that he took our cup. Simultaneously, he offers you his cup. Have you ever believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? Have you got caught up in the spirit of the age that maybe there are many ways to be made right with God? Not according to Matthew 26. There's only one way. There's a person named Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We'll pray and then we'll have our invitation. Faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God. This morning, if you've heard the scripture and the Holy Spirit has done the work that only the Holy Spirit can do, and that's to take the word of God and convict the heart of of a man or a woman, that for the first time this morning you're seeing that The biggest problem we have is that we're sinful and he's righteous. He's holy. He's perfect. He's just. God does not overlook sin, but he has made a way to pay for sin. And there's only one way. His name's Jesus. And Jesus, the spotless lamb of God, is holy and righteous. And at the thought of taking the cup and drinking it, experiencing fully, at the thought of him becoming sin, he agonized. It's agony for him. But he did it 
voluntarily and willingly so that you could be reconciled to God. So I echo, I echo Paul. We implore you, be reconciled to God through Christ Jesus. So during our invitation, I'll stand right here at the front to receive anybody who would say, I want the exchange. He takes my sin, I take his righteousness. His blood is sufficient to cover my sin. Also during the invitation, you you may have a burden on your heart, your soul, your mind. Be my joy and privilege to stand here at the front and pray with you. Or perhaps you'd like to, to come to the front and kneel here at the the front and pray perhaps you just want to express your gratitude to to god the father and the lord jesus christ father we pray during this invitation the holy spirit would bring conviction and encouragement at the same time that oh god we must be saved and hallelujah we can be saved thank you for jesus Thank you that the cup did not pass from him. And thank you that he offers by his blood the cup of the new covenant. And we pray that we would be a people who experience salvation, forgiveness of sin, atoning work of Christ fully. To his glory, to our joy, in Jesus' name, amen.